Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. I'm Joel Bowman for the Fatal Conceits podcast, a show about money, markets, manias, and mobs. And I'm joined by Mr. Dan Denning, who we haven't heard from for a little while, has been hanging out up in the high plains of Laramie, Wyoming. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hi, Joel. Yeah, it's uh, winter's nearly over, so I've come out from my um, hibernation and I didn't see much shadow, <laughs> so it's safe to come out. <laughs> right. Mate, I thought we, we would start uh, just at the top here with the other subject that everybody's talking about, and I don't mean uh, Will Smith's inability to take a joke, um, but the 8% uh, official, let's say, inflation rate, it's the highest that uh, at least has been witnessed in America in my lifetime, in the 40 years of my lifetime, uh, but the official rate is probably, or the unofficial rate rather, is probably a bit higher maybe considerably higher than what most uh, people are being told what's your what's your read on the ground when you go to the pump and the grocery store and order your uh, frozen steaks yeah i well anecdotally the prices are definitely up um you know i i don't drive although i recently bought a used car from one of my uncles so i've timed that probably poorly as a contrarian where i'm buying mates rates i hope <laughs> Yeah, he said this very so anecdotally. He said the the market there is still incredibly tight, and it's partly because uh, dealer inventories are low. And I don't know if that's a supply chain issue, but also part of it is that uh, prior to the supply chain issues, if you looked at the financing in the car market for new new cars, the you know the 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 company owned financers, in addition to the dealers, were offering extremely generous terms. You know, with no money down and financing for forty eight months or seventy two months, and that that's not. And we see that before in all sorts of credit booms where it brings forward demand. And I think in the car market, it brought forward demand so that there just wasn't a lot of. Once that hit the supply chain issue, uh, then you saw a real shortage of both used and new cars. So prices are up, but I just talked to a friend of mine who lives in Spain in in Barcelona. And he said, um, energy prices are through the roof over there and and food prices are up. So I think the big picture for investors is that the fed was poorly, poorly mistaken in all of its policy guidance about inflation. So when it said that 2% was the target, and then it was willing to let inflation overshoot until that showed up in the data. And then it did show up in the data and they ignored the data. Mm-hmm. They missed it. They missed the boat. And now the problem is how do you get ahead of rising prices? And we can get into that later if you want, but um, it's not what the market thinks it is. So nine rate rises between now and the end of the year is not going to be enough to get in front of inflation. So the inflation will probably go higher 
and it will take a higher policy rate to bring it under control if the Fed has the stomach for that, which they don't have the brain for it. And I don't think they have the stomach <laughs> for it either. So it, as part of the narrative that the Fed either uh, either willingly or unwillingly solves to the American public, were you... I asked Bill this question up in Salta just last week, um, and I'm wondering on your take, were you surprised at the kind of uh, the switch in narrative from uh, Chairman Powell's frustration with not having been able to achieve uh, inflation to watching it tick over the, the targeted 2%, calling it transitory, then actually it's it's good for you. And, and now, bizarrely, somewhat in a somewhat of a non sequitur, I think, to many people, uh, having... 8% or generation high inflation positioned as the price we pay for standing shoulder to shoulder with our Ukrainian brethren. I mean, that seems a bit of a, a bit of a stretch, but are people, are people sort of buying into that? Or is that, do you think kind of a coverall for them getting away with the kind of shenanigans they wanted to get away with in the beginning? I think part of it is an insular bubble mentality with policymakers, especially at the monetary level, that they didn't see that quantitative easing itself was inflationary because they saw that that it was contained to really a kind of antiquated back corner of the financial system about in what form reserves were held. Were they held as cash with banks? Or were they held as treasury bonds? And were they held at the Fed or somewhere else? So when the Fed expanded its balance sheet prior to 2020, and it was about $4.3 trillion, they said, well, that was fine. That didn't cause consumer price inflation. The only inflation that it caused was asset price inflation. And that seemed to be okay for, for one reason, because the Fed has this theory that the wealth effect when people have more financial paper net worth, they tend to spend more money. And that that actually helps get them to that 2% inflation target. They thought, well, that's okay. Rising stock prices produce the wealth effect, which produces 2% consumer price inflation. That's the policy. Also, it turns out that some of those Fed governors may have been front-running their own policy decisions. <laughs> so no, rising no. stock prices were 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 great. But then something did appear to change in 2020 when the Fed doubles its balance sheet roughly from 4.3 to whatever it is, 8.9 trillion now in two years. That was inflationary because a lot of the bonds that the Fed bought were was money that the government spent on the fiscal side that went directly into consumer pockets. So this mm-hmm. was the Paycheck Protection Program, which turned out to be riddled with fraud. This was the stimulus that was sent to people's pockets. And of course, now you're talking about the government handing out even more money to offset another policy blunder in the energy market. But uh, that did clearly turn out to be consumer price inflation, um, the stimulus and, and all of the money spent during the pandemic. And I think the mistake from an academic point of view, which is what the mentality uh, that, that the Fed governors are locked in, is that they're saying, well, that shouldn't produce inflation. It, it should be fine. You know, we, It's transitory, which is why they said that, or it's related to interruptions in the supply chain. And it didn't occur to them that inflation is a cyclical process and that once it gets underway, also as a psychological process, then something has to break the cycle. And that something is not magically lower gas prices, it's interest rates that are much higher than the rate of inflation. So we have nominal interest rates that are barely positive right now, but in real terms are still negative. So if inflation's at 8% and real interest rates are negative 2%, and 
to combat inflation, real interest rates have to be three to 5% higher than the inflation rate. You're looking at real interest rates or nominal interest rates of around 12 to 14% to break the cycle of inflation. And that is clearly so unfathomable to, to investors and to policymakers that they don't know what to do with it. But those aren't my, you know, that's the Fed's own Taylor rule, which says where interest rates need to be to have inflation at 2%, stable prices and full employment. And if you use that model, depending on the rate of inflation, current interest rates would have to be at least 12% and as high as 21%, depending on what you use as the rate of inflation to break the cycle of higher prices. And so that's something we're working on right now, Tom and I, to figure out, well, is that possible? Um, if the market were in control of interest rates, where would they be? And then, you know, obviously, what do you do with your money in that environment? You don't want to have your money in cash. You certainly don't want to have it in bonds if interest rates are headed up. Uh, so, so where can you put it? So it's a super important question for investors right now. But I think the main point is the Fed got it wrong massively on inflation. Mm-hmm. And in order for it to get back ahead of the inflation story, it has to do something that it might not be willing to do politically or might not even have support to do politically. Right. And it, it kind of reminds me of you know the person who's uh, looking at the weather app on their phone saying, hey, it's supposed to be 80 degrees out today while it's snowing on their head. The, the reality was just in, in, in such stark contrast to what their theories were telling them uh, where, where they had to go. So uh, the the two numbers that you mentioned just then, um, 11-ish percent and then maybe up to sort of 21%, I'm assuming that's the differential there is based on the different methodologies used to calculate CPI from uh, 80s, 90s, and today. I don't know when the, this uh, Taylor law was first uh, proposed, but I'm assuming it's it was not uh, taking into account the way that inflation is uh, accounted for today is that right or yeah so um i'm you know a, a full explanation of how the taylor rule uh, is constructed is probably beyond the scope of our discussion but <laughs> it um it came in it was an academic study done retroactively about really what happened in the 1970s and and where the fed went wrong in terms of containing inflation at that time and then what paul volcker had to do to get uh, to break the cycle of inflation so Within the rule itself, there's a couple of components. One is uh, what what the rate, the actual rate of inflation is, and that depends on how you calculate it, and where where maybe in a month or two from now. And the other is is the what they would call the difference between long term GDP growth, trend growth, and current growth. So if there's a gap in output, then um, how do you get that gap back up to trend? So there's a couple of different components. But I think for our purposes, the big component to focus on is what is the actual rate of inflation right now? Um, It's probably higher than 8%. And after we get the official data in from from energy prices uh, and their impact on March and April prices, it'll be higher still. And then what Taylor showed from from Volcker's experience is that whatever the actual rate of inflation is, you you had to add four to six percentage points of interest rates on the difference to, to circumvent that cycle where it just goes higher. So mm-hmm. you couldn't just match the policy rate with the inflation rate and say, okay, well, interest rates should be 9%. 
if inflation's at 8%, then that means savers earn 1% a year. Normally, savers expect to earn between 3 and 4% over the rate of inflation. So if you say the current rate of inflation is actually closer to 12% and savers demand uh, an additional 3% on top of that, plus whatever you need to break the cycle where people believe that inflation is ingrained, that's where you get that range of 16 to 21% and saying there has to be in a, a cushion, which savers mm-hmm. can start to make money buying government bonds. And then there has to be something on top of that that breaks the cycle. And, right. uh, you know, it's the, but the main point I think is that it doesn't come down naturally once it gets underway. And the only way it comes down is if you either let the market set interest rates, which the Fed is considering doing by, by not intervening in the bond market the way it has been in the last two years. Or by setting the policy rate much higher, and you know that's the other thing that was interesting in the last couple of weeks, or since I spoke to you, that the big, the big result of all this is that if the Fed continues to be so far behind the curve and gets it wrong, what you'll see. And I started writing about this a couple of years ago when I reviewed the Chicago Plan from the 1930s. Is you'll see calls from the political sphere of American life to take away the Fed's control of the money and give it to either Congress or the Treasury Department. Mm. And in that regard, you know, the Fed floated its proposal for a central bank digital currency. But in the last couple months since I talked to you, someone floated a bill in Congress calling for a digital dollar that's created and managed by the U.S. Treasury not by the Federal Reserve. So instead of a central bank digital currency, I would call it a central government digital currency. And it doesn't have any of the features of cryptocurrency. There's no distributed ledger. There's no blockchain. It's really just like an electronic credit card from the government or an application on your phone where the government debits money into your account to spend. And to me, that's the political response to the Fed's policy errors saying, fine, if you guys can't control inflation or produce stable employment or full employment and stable currency, then you're failing in your dual mandate and we'll just take control of the money system from you and we'll do it ourselves. So I think that's an issue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what it means is what we've said is that that there are serious problems with our money system and they are not solved. You can either solve them in the way governments have solved them in the past, which is inflating away the debt, which is a huge quality of life issue for people right now on fixed incomes, whose whose costs have gone up, whose rent has gone up, whose fuel has gone up, whose energy costs, whose food, you know, that ha- that's happened now. That's not a future thing. If you're on a fixed income and you're getting negative interest on your savings after you include inflation, your cost of living has gone up. Yep. So, you know, the issue is where does it end? And it ends in either a massive further depreciation in the dollar or it ends up in a new kind of currency. And that's why we're having conversations about central bank digital currency or now central government digital currency. So so let's follow that thread a li- just a little bit further and imagine indeed that, uh, that Congress uh, wags its tut-tutting finger at the Fed and says, You've failed in pretending to curb inflation and you've failed in pretending to safeguard full employment. Uh, your time's up. Now we're going to pretend to do these things. 
uh, on behalf of those we affect to serve. Uh, let's imagine that in, indeed a CGDC, a central government digital currency, does indeed come into effect. Uh, given the recent uh, sort of backdrop of um, of the weaponization of um, of foreign assets or foreign currency assets uh, or the confiscation, the ease at which um, money or donations were confiscated, which we we saw up in Canada with the whole GoFundMe uh, debacle. What do you foresee in this kind of Orwellian future where the government may well have the power to, uh, you know, for one reason or another, turn off your access uh, to its permission-based money? I know this is something you've read and thought about a lot. Yeah, I think it's on track. You know, I should qualify it and say the, the bill that was introduced in Congress uh, is not is still in committee. So it doesn't guarantee that it's going to get out of committee. And it's not likely, I think, to get uh, passed by either the House or certainly the Senate before the midterm elections later this year. So is it a clear... Uh, what it called for is uh, several pilot programs to be implemented within 90 days passage of the bill that would test a central government digital currency as either like a debit card, which apparently they have in the military. I think it's called Eagle Cash. So it's a preloaded card or it's a card that has a PIN number. And the reason they want that is it's compatible with the way most people who who are in the banking system now get their money. It's just a new card with the new PIN number and the, the entity on the other side is the government rather than a private bank. The other pilot program calls for it to be used on your phone. And they, they figured that between debit cards or credit cards and phones, that covers you know the vast majority of people uh, who have a bank account right now. And even those who don't have a bank account, they could be brought into the financial system that way. So as a pilot program, in theory, it's compatible with the existing financial infrastructure and architecture to test. Uh, so it doesn't require a brand new development in technology or a lot of development time. I still think it's unlikely that it'll happen before the midterms, but to me, that's not the reason to, to um, dismiss it. The reason to think is that it's going to happen eventually anyway, is that it gives the Congress, whoever's in control of the Congress, a lot more control over money. So, you know, we talk about the we don't talk about it, but I'll talk about it briefly. In the current, the budget that was recently passed, which wasn't really a budget, it was a $1.5 trillion funding bill. They reintroduced um, earmarks or pork barreling, as it used to be called, where congressmen or senators could, could find projects in their district that directly benefited their constituents. And it was just a wink, wink thing that if you do that, I'll let you do this. And so, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of spending end up back in someone's congressional district because someone slipped it into the government bill. I think that when you look at the trend with this central government digital currency, it's kind of a way of earmarking spending based on a couple of things, probably based on net worth, uh, perhaps political party affiliation, or perhaps, you know, in the most dystopian view, you're your uh, your political views as expressed on social media and as monitored by a social credit score. So mm-hmm. for example, at the top end, people who have most of their net worth tied up in financial assets, they're not affected by inflation. And by the way, this is why the Fed was surprised with inflation being higher than they expected 
because their cost of living doesn't matter to them. You know, they don't spend right. as much money on food and fuel. So they just didn't notice as it the way yeah. The, yeah, the middle class did notice it. But you've already seen with the discussions on taxing unrealized capital gains or taxing net worth, things like that, that at the top end, you know, central government digital currency doesn't affect you because, you know, you're, that's not, it's not pocket money. It doesn't, it's not a pocketbook issue for, for wealthy people. It is an issue for, for the middle class and people uh, who are net recipients of government benefits. And the point is for the middle class, your access to money will be controlled on what basis we don't know. That's the issue. Will it be based on how much you should be spending or whether you're saving too much? Are you hoarding your Mm -hmm. savings? Whereas you could be doing your part to help the economy by spending more money. So if you have a, a if you have more than $100,000 in savings in a, a FDIC insured account, they may tax those savings or that's impose that's a negative patriotic. interest rate. Yeah, or say look, if you don't spend it, the money expires. And there are systems in mm. the past where the money was timed. So they mm. said, you know, like spend it or lose it. Yeah. And then the other issue with uh, with with people who don't have money is to say, hey, if you're on social security disability, if you're on social security, Medicare, Medicaid, or unemployment, we will send you money, but only if you agree to have it downloaded and monitored on your phone, or it comes pre-installed on on this piece of plastic. And then in that case, you can't spend it on things which are prohibited. So Mm. your, your, Mm. your receipt of government benefits is dependent on, uh, our permission. So uh, to me, that seems like either party of Congress would be capable of saying, yeah, we'd be happy to have a lot more control over who gets to spend money and how much they get to spend. Um, The real issue is why would the bankers willingly surrender their control of the monetary system that they have now through the Fed? They wouldn't willingly do it. And we know that they're, they're, huge contributors politically to the people that get elected to Congress. So it's a very powerful lobby that's going to want to preserve its position of privilege in the money system. But they are now directly opposed philosophically by people who say, you failed. You're just a bunch of rich bankers anyway. Why don't we have a money system that works, quote unquote, for the people and is run by the people? And that's probably going to be how this issue is framed in the in the next year or two as a political issue. And it it does uh, it it does seem like it, something that you and I have been talking about for goodness the past eighteen months, maybe longer. That I don't think you necessarily have to be conspiratorially inclined to put the left foot in front of the right foot and and say that these events, whether it be plague or pestilence or the COVID or even the latest um, great cause du jour in Eastern Europe, that these tend to be catalyzing events for trends that were really already underway. Uh, and, you know, we've we've seen this kind of usurpation of power away from the individual into the, into the hands of the state in many other uh, realms and aspects of life, it would, seem, it would seem to make sense that the financial uh, would would follow on from there. So uh, getting down to where rubber meets the road here, what does that mean for you uh, when you and Tom sit down and look at your uh, 
the allocation, strategic allocation for the Bonner Private Research Portfolio. When you try and work out what your allocation to cash versus stocks versus uh, gold hard assets, uh, for example, how do you kind of play that out in the next, you know, let's say med- near to medium term uh, future with the, balancing those uh, competing forces on the horizon? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's in you know we we released in um, early March the last of the three major reports that we wanted to produce for new subscribers. So the first was Tom's Gold Report, which sort of explained the relationship between financial assets measured by the Dow Jones Industrials in real money measured by gold. So it's the Dow in gold terms. And that that gives people probably the, the broadest understanding of what we think is going on within the stock market relative to gold. So two decisions there on how much to own of each asset. Then we introduced our trade of the decade, which is sort of an inflation-based energy trade. Um, and that's a another pillar of our strategy, not just for this year, but for, for the next 10 years, at least, we hope. And then the third was, uh, you know, generally, uh, you'd call it an asset allocation strategy, but we just called it the strategy report, which is to say, when you look at these big piles of money in different asset classes, how much should, should you have in each based on our macroeconomic forecast for inflation and based on, you know, the last... 10 years of performance for each of those asset classes. So, you know, it's it's not an exact science, but there is a lot of data which shows how different asset classes perform in different macroeconomic environments. So gold stocks, cash and bonds in a high inflation, low growth environment, or, um, you know, a, a low inflation, high growth environment, you know, that you can look back and see what's happened, but you know, the standard disclaimer is, past performance doesn't guarantee future results. But where we started the year was with a very high allocation to cash, no allocation whatsoever to fixed income or bonds, and then a mixed allocation to equities and hard assets. And it it gets a little bit more complicated because most people don't have crude oil stored in their backyard or soybeans in their garage. You know, when Mm -hmm. when you talk about getting exposure to rising commodity prices, there's, there's only a few ways you can do it. You can do it through the futures markets, which is a financial instrument that you know benefits from real right real price rises. But as we saw with what happened on the London metal exchange, you know, when the nickel trade was suspended for two days because the nickel price just went through the moon, financial speculation on real assets doesn't always equate to profit. You know, you can you can get the you can get the decision right and still not make money. But you can also buy equities. You know, you can buy commodity producers, but then you're buying an equity, which is a different asset class. And as we know in the past, when there's a bear market in stocks, which is what we think there is right now, we think we're in the middle of a, a very vicious bull market rally within a long-term bear market. Stocks as an asset class go down in a bear market. So you might own something you think which is really high quality. This is a point Chris Mayer made in the conversation you and I had with him about a month ago is even the highest quality stocks that have great earnings and very little debt and very high returns on equity or high returns on capital. When liquidity leaves the stock market, if it's a liquidity driven bear market, it affects everybody. So stocks as a way to hide from a bear market, you know, high quality commodity stocks aren't necessarily safe in a bear market. You've got to you got to 
measure and understand the risk there. On the other hand, we, you know, Tom has made a really good point that buying shares in high quality businesses that grow earnings and have some particular catalyst that's driving their earnings, whether that's a, a supply shortage or demand growth, you know, it varies from business to business to ind- or industry to industry. But you can find sectors or pockets of value or pockets of outperformance that I would describe as more tactical trades. And that's why we don't include them as the trade of the decade. So our goal this year is to reduce the allocation to cash, increase the allocation to to equities and real assets by by wherever the best opportunity is, whether it's it's, um, uh, a financial trade or it's an equity trade. But the bottom line is, and I mean this from a large-term perspective, if you look at interest rates going back 700 years, and you look at what's called the risk-free rate on uh, whatever was considered the, the soundest, most creditworthy government, the risk-free rate has been going down for 700 years since, since Venice in the Middle mm-hmm. Ages. And what we're talking about is, is a fundamental change to a very long-term trend. So not even the 50-year trend in the U.S. dollar, but um, interest rates that have been going down in the United States for 40 years, which resulted in a 40-year bull market in bonds and equities. If that's the kind of change we're talking about right now, then then, um, whatever your strategy is, it has to account for for that. And... um, that's what we're trying to account for, but it's you know, it's it's a really really big subject, and we think that most conventional advice on that continues to have way too many equities, hasn't really figured in what would happen to the bond market if interest rates went up by ten to fifteen percent, uh, and is hasn't put any thought into what alternative assets or hard assets are the best place of refuge if you're reducing your allocation to those other classes. So um, so I, I'm kind of happy that we're in, again, a really contrarian outlandish position. But on the other hand, it's there's no such thing as a risk-free position anymore. And particularly with cash, given the inflation rate and the trends in the banking and financial sector to redefining what money is, our goal is to is to reduce our cash cash allocation um, by the end of the year, hopefully by the middle of the year, if we can. Mm, Yeah, it is a a huge challenge. As you said, it does seem like the world is awash in uh, what we might call return-free risk uh, at present. So the bringing forward from the Medici's uh, onward, I'll uh, bring it, just wrap us up with uh, a, a quick update on how, uh, your trade of the decade is going uh, for those who are, are just kind of joining us now. It's um, probably generally defined as long, uh, old school hydrocarbon energy. Uh, and by by virtue of the flip side of that would be to, uh, short US dollar. So uh, how are we going, what, a year into this? Or what, when was it first uh, made public? I guess would have been around the winter catastrophe or... Uh, it was it was over a year ago, so it was January of 2021 in our with our previous publisher. Um, but I think in the context of what's happened recently, 
the most frequent question I get from new readers is, have I missed the trade? Is it because it's up? So it's up, you know, around a hundred percent, which if it were a short-term trade, we, we might very well just close it out and and look at re-entering it at um at a lower price. But it's not a short-term trade. So the point I would make to new readers and the point Tom and I have tried to make to all new readers when they're trying to evaluate how to incorporate our research and coverage into their own financial plan is we will explain to you what we think could happen and what what the trade is designed to do. And then you've got to decide how to how to manage that with your own plans. In this particular instance, in the last week, we've had the Biden administration announce that it's going to release a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for the next six months to try and mitigate the presumably the effects of cutting off Russian imports. And obviously going into the summer, the driving season, and into the midterms to try and bring down the price of gasoline so that people aren't upset when they go to the voting booth. <laughs> uh, none of that will matter at all to our trade. You know, the, the the two key points of that trade were that you had 10 years of under capital investment in oil and gas, which has led to a deficit of supply, which cannot be easily made up. So it's not like flipping on the light switch. So the other component would be that demand is going to rise. And the financial component was that these investments, excuse me, performed so poorly for the previous 10 years that from a cyclical point of view and a sectoral point of view, um, they it was almost like the dogs of the Dow, but it was like the dogs of the S&P that the sector was going to should have a good 10 years. It's not a straight line. So what we've advised people is as the oil price corrects from time to time, then uh, look for the price of the trade that we recommended to be more uh, approachable for new investors. But um, as a long-term trade, I'm not worried. I, you know, I don't know how big the upside is. The last time Bill made, well, when Bill made his successful trade in gold in the 2000s, I think gold was up 420% that decade in the S&P 500, was down 19%. And of course, those percentages are determined by what the start date is and, and what the entry date is. And that varies a lot depending on when you got in. But I'd say for the trade of the decade, there's there's still a lot of upside left because the oil price could go much higher. And the fundamentals in the uh, in the fossil fuel market favor the old school uh, oil and gas companies. For Tom's stuff, it's a little bit different, but I would remind people that Tom's ideas are designed to be shorter term and tactical. So if you've missed something like the tanker trade or the shipping stocks, uh, Tom will tell you what the risk is. He'll tell you where the stop losses are, but he'll also tell you not to chase the trade. You know, the whole point of having a subscription to what we're doing is that we're researching new stuff every month. And although some of the ideas are long-term, Tom's entire job is to come up with new ideas. So we don't want people to come in and look and see what they missed out on, although we want them to evaluate the quality of the research and decide, are they right? Did it work? Could I have made money? But don't. there's no FOMO in our right. service. We, we don't want people to be focused on past gains. We want them to be focused on future opportunities and also future risks. So, you know, we try to do our best. Tom writes every Wednesday and I write every Friday. So we try to, as new readers come in, we try to to bring them up to speed on on where we stand with outstanding positions. But the the main focus is what, what are we going to do 
uh, going forward and what are we going to do? What will the world look like in two years and what should we be doing now to, to be in the right place for that world? So it's exciting, but it's, it's, um, it's extremely challenging for everybody. And, you know, investors have different timeframes too. That's the other thing we've got to keep in mind is I think for your, for your six-year-old, uh, she might be in a really good position to buy stocks at incredibly low prices by the time this bear market is over. So for her, it'll be the opportunity of a lifetime. But for her grandparents, it's it's a clear and present danger to the value of their retirement. So it's a, how you view the current situation depends on your perspective. And we try to incorporate that when we when we comment on it as well. Yeah, it is without kind of torturing a a much overused word, it is uh, somewhat of a holistic approach that you guys are taking, both with regards to near-term tactical trades, but also uh, balancing that out with longer-term uh, macro observations, which in the case of the trade of the decade uh, will unfold over, I guess we've got a good nine years of upside, uh, let's say, to go uh, on that one. So for listeners and readers, uh, just to recap, uh, Dan writes to our paid Bonner Private Research subscribers every Friday. Um, and he'll be updating in, depending when this goes out, a couple of days. Uh, Tom writes to our readers every Wednesday, uh, updating the positions that he has in the Bonner Private Research portfolio, including, as Dan mentioned, uh, strike prices, um, a little risk uh, profile or uh, figure that he he gives those particular uh, those particular equities and uh, some commentary along that uh, along those lines along the way. So uh, I think maybe we'll leave it there, Dan, uh, and let you return to the windy chills and climbs of uh, of Laramie. I'm going to head out for a steak lunch myself down here, and uh, we'll catch up again soon. All right, Joel. Thanks very much. Cheers, Dan. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.